Nota Bene. How's it going, Nate Freeman? Great. Fantastic. Still in Venice. Still beautiful. Still sunny. Still at the beach. I mean, you're wearing, you're wearing a coat inside. Is that just because the AC is bumping there in your pool house, uh, your Cato Kalen-like living situation? Um, well, you know, in Los Angeles, it gets a little chilly at night and in the mornings, and it's still 1030 in the morning here. So as the sun gets high, it gets warmer. Right now, it's kind of like sweater weather. It's uh, nice. I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. I am still in Dallas. It seems like I'm probably going to be here forever. It's cold but sunny <laughs> um, uh, because I'm eating vegan and my uh, hotel, uh, the beautiful mansion, uh, as good as the room mm. service is, not really a vegan-friendly f- menu. It's not um, a very vegan-friendly state that you're in, honestly. No, so I'm basically just fasting. It's okay. I'm crazy. If you go to the People's Republic of Austin, there might be some, like, you know, Tofu places, but I bet you they have like ja- I bet you they have like jackfruit barbecue there where they like treat it in the hickory smoke. <laughs> like, terrible. Oh come on, Jesus. you know that's gonna be good. Good. Eating. No, it's not gonna be good. Do you know what jackfruit is? It's just like a strange slab of like I don't know. Uh, I, I don't like the, the 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 fruit as meat thing. You can't just you can't do that. <laughs> it goes I against God. It goes vegan. against God and nature. I can't believe you're a vegan. This is insane to me. Okay. I'm just for a little stutter step into right, veganism. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, testing the waters. Uh, don't don't mock. Don't kink shame me. I'm not. Freeman. I'm not kink shaming. No kink shaming. No vegan shaming. I'm just. We've shared many a steak together. Is all I'm saying. You know, as I, I'm here in Dallas, installing some art, moving some things around. I mean, I'm so indecisive. I move something to one wall. I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's move it to the other. But anyway, one of the very generous and uh, 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 and and sweet crew that, that that deal with my idiosyncrasies says, "Hey, so I really like your podcast." <laughs> and that Man. made me feel so shout out shout That's out good. to the to, to the good people at unified uh here in dallas uh mm-hmm. for going along with all my insane ideas i appreciate it <laughs> including the ones that you cook up on this podcast uh yeah i mean although the you know they're not gonna give me any discount on their outrageous invoices but that's okay <laughs> Um, anyway, this is what's, mm. what's going on. We, 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 we wrapped up our fun time. I really, the last thing I did in LA was hang out with you, do mm-hmm. a podcast, went and had some delicious pizza. I had a vegan slice, totally edible. Uh, not as good looking From as your Julian slice. From Julian Takeaway. Is that what it was? Really, really delicious mm-hmm. shit. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the best ten dollars slice of pizza you can get. I, I really, I forgot to mention. Like, I went to Destroyer uh, while I was mm-hmm. in LA, and you got to get over there. It's by the guy who I does buzz the guy by the guy who does Vespertine in Culver City on the mm-hmm. same street. And like, I thought it was just this like basic bitch brunch spot based on who is there because it's fucking LA. Right. And even the menu was like bowls and waffles. And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. I was meeting with some some really great clients, and then the food dropped and it was like molecular influence deliciousness, like. Out of yeah. control stuff. Out of control. That's not usually my shit, but like you know, no, because I it's casual lunch. It's like it's like counter service, and they bring it to you. But it's like really highly done. I obviously didn't have the steak tartare. It looked mind blowing. Right. I had a, a deconstructed avocado toast with like crispy rice that was insane. I had this bowl of blueberries, Nate Freeman, with like a coconut yogurt, right. and it was like. I mean, it was the most. It was like Ugh. the blueberry flavor that you imagine from Willy Wonka's. Uh, Let's go back uh, to the meal. steak tartare. That sounds good. okay. Okay, enough <laughs> out of you. Enough out of you. Um, anyway, I've, I've while there's a lot of the art world here in Dallas, there's not a lot of art world news that emanates from here. But it seems mm-hmm. like some big things uh, hit my transom coming out of New York. Uh, I got yeah, a, I got a kind of interesting and slightly weird and very long. Frankly, I went back and read it this morning because it blew up <laughs> the group chat uh, email. Uh, from the desk of Jeannie, uh, 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 Jeannie Greenberg uh, Rohan, mm-hmm. uh, 
as it was, uh, wasn't from her, it was from Info at Salon 94, if you looked at the email. But anyway, um, had some news about the long uh, announced and anticipated tie-up with um, a couple other gavelies with Levy Gorvey. What can you tell me about this email? Did I mean, you, I don't really know. Did you read it? I, I didn't read the whole thing. No, it just seemed really, really, really long. But basically, the way in which this merger was announced back uh, last summer uh, doesn't seem to be happening the way that it was anticipated. Am I right? That's what my take was. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was announced that Levy Gorvey, Dominique Levy and Brett Gorvey's gallery would be merging with Amalia Diane uh, from of Luxembourg and Diane and Jeannie Greenberg, who has Law 94. And they would all be working out of this, you know, miraculous uh, palace-like space on 89th Street that Jeannie purchased for $22.3 million. That's exactly right, 22.3, plus like at least 7 million renovations. I'm sure it was way more than just seven. I mean, that was a full, like, top-down reno. You know, a gorgeous old space needed a lot of love. So I'm sure she spent probably 15 on that. And so that was going to be the home base. But in the announcement today, it said that 99 Madison Avenue, which is the former Levy Gorby space, will be the headquarters for LGDR. And uh, it's interesting because in the Times piece um, in August, it said that they were giving up that space. So what gives? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, w- I was always, I don't want to say suspicious, but I was always, it felt like it was going to be a lot for these very disparate individuals to collaborate fully. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems like it's not going, at least according to plan, it's definitely not going according to plan. Because, no. you know, because uh, it seems like um, Jeannie Greenberg has like has shows programmed out in that space on on uh, 89th Street going forward for the next five not or six months. LGDR shows, the Salon 94 shows. She mm-hmm. has like her own, you know, she still has a website operating. She has artists that she represents. She has a whole staff apparently still. So it's unclear if she's even like really joining this merger at all. Um, you know, she's never striked me as one that plays that well with others. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, obviously plays well with her clients, but it always struck me as, uh, as strange. But I guess I wonder how they're going forward, if it's just going to be her advisory business, which is, mm-hmm. I think, funds a lot of the gallery. If that's what's tying up with uh, with the other colleagues and then the, the gallery programming will remain separate. Um it's kind Maybe that's of strange, it. yeah. Uh, we should check in with some of our friends at show with Levy Gorvey, see if they have any insight into this whole thing. Because they have their slate of, you know, because, uh, you know, friend of the pod, Joel Messler, has a show opening, like, next week in Palm Beach and London simultaneously of his new work, I believe. I know. Uh, I think, yeah, London and Palm Beach. Um, right? But there's no shows planned for New York yet. No, not, not that I saw on the website this morning anyway. Although, mm-hmm. of course, yeah, I should have asked Amalia when I bumped into her at Blum and Poe the other day. Yeah, that, 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 that could have helped. Amalia, um, why don't you come on the pod? We'll, we'll sort this all out. Um, what else? I guess, uh, is, is the space in, in Freeman's Alley still there for Salon 94? Uh, who knows? Uh, I mean, I think I walked by it like almost a year ago when going to Freeman's. It seemed like there was a gallery there. I definitely haven't been to an art show there in at least five years. Yeah. Freeman's is still good, though. Might say a little bit more about the house. You know what I'm really pumped for? It's like Ashley Bickerton mania in New York Mm -hmm. coming up. I know. We're both missing out. There's a big dinner uh, tomorrow night. I know. We're not going to. At at O'Flaherty's? Is that the name of the gallery? I think the dinner is at, at John's, the venerable red sauce joint. 
in the West Village. But in addition to the Layman Maupin show, which is curated by former guest of the pod, Ellie Rines, um, the, O'Flaher- the O'Flaherty's gallery, which is uh, uh, Jamie and, uh, Jamian's gallery uh, over mm-hmm. in the East Village in your neck of the woods, um, mm-hmm. they're doing some Ashley Bickerton show as well. It looks fucking suspend- stupendous. I just saw yeah. the... Um, uh, what do you call it? The um, the previews from both. I'm so excited that Ashley is getting this kind of big moment in New York. I hope people are paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, interesting also is that uh, the press release for the show at Flaherty's was written by none other than Jordan Wolfson. I know that. In in the press release, he says that he basically ripped off <laughs> Ashley entirely uh, when starting to make his own work, and that his entire career has been something of an homage to to, to Ashley Bickerton. Which makes sense to me. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I think there's a lot of a generation of artists that really looked up towards uh, towards Ashley, both painters and sculptors, because he really worked mm-hmm. across both both media <coughs> successfully. Um, yeah, that, that he's a really important figure for, and I think that's why it's so interesting to see these two shows happening, kind of spearheaded by two leading lights, for lack of a better term, of a certain mm-hmm. younger generation of New York art world in in Ellie and Jamian. Right. I'm sure he could have had a show at like Zorner if he really wanted to, but you know, this is way cooler and it's exciting to see Ash again uh, after, you know, a, a long spell in Bali, which is very far away from here. And speaking of kind of a, a new generation of artists, it is, I can't believe it's already time again, but it is Whitney Biennial time again. And they just released the mm-hmm. list of artists yesterday. Um, 63, yep. I think participating artists and or collectives. God forbid you have a fucking biennial these days without a collective or two in it. Um, did you have any thoughts about this uh, about this list? It's obviously curated by Adrian Edwards and David Breslin. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of an interesting matchup of, of, of two very different curators. Um, a lot of names I knew on here, like you know, big you know art market names like Harold Ancart. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Some more old school, um, but really like cool names like Nail and Blake, who's like a fucking badass. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. then a few names I had never heard of. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, some strike me as, like, very obvious good inclusions, like Alex DeCorta, of course, yep. um, like you said, Harold, uh, Cy Gavin, people like that. It's like, okay, yeah, these are people who should be in, like, a Whitney Biennial in 2022, for sure. But then, yeah, you see some some sort of more surprising names uh, that are very, very welcome, um, you know, like you mentioned um, Nailing Blake, but also Charles Ray, who has a show that just opened at the Met. Not this the kind of person who I would think would be in the Whitney Biennial, but it's just exciting but, to see but how also talk about his work will interplay. Yeah, but also talk about an artist that I think has had a lot of effect on a younger generation of sculptors. Totally. I think, you know, Charlie Ray, arguably, you know, with along with Bob Gober and a couple other people, like greatest living sculptors, American sculptors, certainly. Right. Um, is, he, how, is this just his second biennial that Charlie's been in? I didn't do the math. I remember when I was a kid coming to New York, I must have been in middle school and seeing his amazing big red oversized fire truck on Madison oh, yeah. Avenue uh, outside the, the Broyer and Whitney back in the day. And that was like an early contemporary art that like stuck in my head, like, oh, art can explode my mind and the world. Yeah. Um, also, um, yeah. yeah. But also I was going to think, you know, on the other end, you have Coco Fusco, who's probably been in like three or four biennials, I would think. <laughs> um, you know, a great academic artist um, has never really had much uh, gallery traction, but like, you know, a really insightful thinker, but someone who is thinking about notions of critical race theory and race in institutions well in advance of its current currency within with, within mm. the, within the discourse. And then at the same time, you have a few younger artists, some artists born in the 90s, Woody DeFello, who uh, shows with the Jessica Silverman Gallery, and our friends at Karma, 
very exciting to have him in the mix as well as someone like Rose Slane, who mm-hmm. shows with um, you know uh, Vanessa Carlos in London and was in uh, very very uh, was a highlight for for me in the New Museum Triennial, uh, and then um, an artist like who else was. was I mean, I was really excited. Set here. I was really excited that Sable Lee Smith, uh, who shows oh, the JTT, yeah. mm-hmm. who I think is you know really mm-hmm. looking at at the role of institutions and in, in, in jails in American culture. Absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, really incredible artist. Uh, you know, fantastic artist Michael E. Smith, who has a show that just mm-hmm. opened uh, very recently in London at uh, Modern Art, I believe. Uh, incredible. Yeah, and then Jason Rhodes, like OG RIP. I know. You know, um, a hero to many of us. Um, to see him included again, I think is is Absolutely. pretty exciting. I think that there's been some talk about how that estate has been sort of uh, handled by the House and Birth Gallery. They hadn't really had a show in so long, I feel like. And, and it's really exciting to, to imagine what or how Jason can be in conversation with, with you know, artists young and old again. I think that's going to be a highlight. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot to look forward to. Uh, I think it's a good list. People were, were shit talking it. Not really gonna shit talk. I think I think it's a good list. I think I mean, that, I don't, that I don't a lot think, of like a lot of great talent. I don't I don't think a Whitney Bynum it's, list has ever been released and not instantly had shit talked about it. It's just the nature mm-hmm. of the beast, and that's fine. You but know. it's just like but like the shit talk. People gonna play like, a hate. People gonna play a hate. That's just people, the, they were just saying like they were like most like predictable list ever. It's like what the fuck does that mean? Like did, did you predict every single artist was gonna be on here? No. Like just because like it seems right doesn't mean it's boring and predictable. I could like, imagine a list that included all these artists and one that included none of them and both would have made total sense in this particular exactly. Moment. It's yeah. a snap. It's not a snapshot of the art world. It's, it's which people don't understand, even though it's billed as such. It's a snapshot mm-hmm. of particular curators' view of what's kind of I- important right. or impactful. At, at a snapshot in time and I think that's like a that, that's a valid thing I mean curators are still important I want to see a point of view I don't want to mm-hmm. see a list that people would agree upon um, necessarily or that they could yeah. they could, um, anyway something to look forward to there's also another biennial coming up this spring uh, in Venice and I don't mean oh yeah I don't I don't mean Venice, uh, California. Oh, but that's <laughs> <laughs> so here. Um, here in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen, Nate Freeman has written Venice dining options. I was thinking of uh, I was thinking of the Venice, Italy <laughs> restaurants I was going to go to, which I I didn't I, do the research for, but now I realize he was talking about the restaurants he's been dining in in Venice, California. I was talking about where I wanted to get lunch today yeah um yeah, sorry but I'm, I'm not thinking about April quite yet. Well, we'll circle back to everything else on your list. What are you thinking about lunch today? For lunch, yeah, I mean, I'm either gonna go to Julian the Takeaway again, or go to Justa, or go to Erewhon and pick up some snacks, bring it back here. I, I mean, I can do literally whatever the fuck I want. These like, are all thirty dollars you know. lunch options, by the way, ladies and <laughs> <Yes>. gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe I think maybe you should go to Ralph's and get some black beans and and, and keep on budget. <laughs> um, anyway, um, you know, uh, so, so fuck me, indeed. Um, you know, uh, once again, uh, the the French have lain down and surrendered to an invading horde. Uh, you know, if, if anyone's going to wave the white flag instantly, it's the French. And they have allowed the Swiss, of all people, <laughs> to march down the streets of Paris and take over the, uh, the Grand Palais, uh, where Art Basel has recently announced that they have somehow pushed out Fiac uh, from their longstanding hold over that venue uh, in October, I believe, um, and stage Art Basel Paris. What? That's that yeah. was crazy. Did you expect this? Had you heard about this? I mean, yeah, to some extent. I mean, it was pretty much an open secret that the Grand Palais and the French government basically uh, 
offered up the lease on uh, the you know the grand play, which is where uh, you know a bunch of like years long ugh, conventions around the year take place at the grand play, including FIOC, the biggest art fair in Paris and in, in France. The government decided they could just offer it up to the highest bidder, and that highest bidder ended up being our Basel. I mean, yeah, because we 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 briefly mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but it feels like maybe it was. Uh the the speed with which they offered up the concession and how quickly Basel closed it with a winning bid makes it mm-hmm. feel like an inside job to me. And I think the Fiat yeah. the Fiat people certainly feel that way, it seems. I mean, yeah, the Fiat people are fucking pissed. I mean, like, yeah, it sucks. They just like sort of like like bazooka their fare in like a matter of weeks. Like, you know. Um, but like at the same time then, like I can't help but think that like, you know, maybe that fare needed some some juice. It was like pretty, you know, pretty meh this time around in October. I mean, like, like the fair itself, like took second fiddle to like, you know, Pino's museum and shit like that. Like, you know, like this is an opportunity for Basel to come in and be like, we're going to make this a must see event. It's going to be, you know, like a Basel size thing, not just like a regional thing. Yeah. I mean, it's always been much quieter in terms of the commerce and, and, but, but Mm -hmm. I kind of liked it because it was a different type of work than you would see in Basel. It was a little bit more conceptual often, uh, idiosyncratic, I would say. Um, it wasn't a place where I ever did really any buying at all. I never, I just went over there and like ended up wasting money in Paris, which is a beautiful place to do as such. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, and you know, there's, you know, so I guess it'll be more Basel like and a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more like what I'm used to in terms of the places I do a lot of business. I will say this, you know, who's the real loser and it ain't Fiac. Freeze hmm? in London is the real loser, yeah, I think, in this I particular know. thing, because it'll be just, you know, a few weeks after a couple weeks, usually, if not a week right. after Freeze closes. And there's a lot more competition between the types of galleries and the types of collectors that attend to Freeze and attend to Basel Fair. And I think mm-hmm. uh, this is really a direct strike at the Freeze team. I mean, think about the last few years, though, you know, starting in 2012, Freeze expanded to New York. And then, you know, in the last few years, it expanded to Los Angeles and now uh, Seoul, Korea. Basel hasn't opened a new fair since Hong Kong, um, you know, so they desperately needed to have some kind of expansion just to keep up with Freeze. And now, yeah, like collectors and dealers are going to have to choose whether they go to London or Paris. And I think a lot of people are going to choose Paris because it's the new thing. Yeah, definitely. I think the first year, especially, um, you mm-hmm. know, putting that Murdoch money to good use. I did yep. see a lot of from from people I know in the French art world that have uh, that have galleries there. I saw some very positive reactions, at least on the Instagram, oh, real yeah. briefly. It's, it doesn't seem like the Fiat team, which I don't know well or really at all, had made any great friends within the local art community there, which is uh, was probably pretty short sighted. I, I don't think that was for lack of trying. I mean, Jennifer Flay, who's the uh, director of FIAC, if FIAC even exists anymore. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, like, she definitely tried to have a relationship with galleries. I think that just it had been so long since FIAC was like a must-attend fair that they just sort of, the galleries focused on themselves. Like, a lot of, like, spaces opened up, like Zwerner did, after Brexit, thinking that Paris can be, like, you know, the center of commerce in Europe. Um I think that the pandemic kind of rejiggered things even more. Uh, so that isn't quite the narrative anymore. But I think that with Brexit, with the, we're coming out of the pandemic, there's a lot of arguments we made that Paris can be the uh, cultural and economic capital of Europe. So is what Boston it is. Made a bet. I'll see you there, man. I'll see you in Paris. Um, going forward, uh, what did you do last night, man? It seems like you were at a cool party up in the Hollywood or Los Files Hills. 
Well, so I, I mean my way up the hills in Los Feliz, which is not quite as fashionable as, you know, the bird streets, like right above Hollywood. It's sort of like, you know, east of the 101. So it's not as fashionable, like, but maybe more tasteful. I mean, quite possibly. I went to a really lovely home. Uh, it was actually uh, built in 1989 by the first female director in Hollywood, interestingly enough. Um, it's a sort of Greek style with Doric columns. And inside was a show by Ted Pym, put together by a friend of the pod, Bill Powers. He is opening up inside this crazy mansion in Los Feliz. It's really cool. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, look, the, 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 mm-hmm. the show looked good, but the space looked incredible. And is he going to keep this for a number of months? Is this a long-term expansion of Half Gower? Did you have a chance to chat with him about this? Yeah, I was just talking to Bill about it. He said that he has, uh, I think he's running it through April, and he's going to do a number of shows there. I think um, there's going to be some group shows, some more solo shows. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to do stuff. There's, you know, a, a pool with a, you know, on, on, the, on the top deck, view, beautiful views of downtown Los Angeles. Um, just like a really cool, cool space to do shows. There was also like a little like guy flipping smash burgers downstairs, you know, Artists like Umar Rashid were hanging out. Like it was really a really cool scene. Any extra bedrooms? I, I realize I haven't booked a hotel for Freeze Week in LA. <laughs> maybe, maybe I can crash, <laughs> crash bed down with Mr. Powers. Uh, I, I think that that can po- probably be arranged. Bill, if you're listening, we're gonna hit you up for rooms. Oh, I know house. he's listening. I know he's listening. Um, uh, and who, anyone else there? Uh, you mentioned a couple artists. Uh, did the LA Collector class uh, make it out on a on a t- Wednesday in? whatever month we're in January. It was Tuesday and we're, it is January. Um, but you know, I, I only stopped by for like 20 minutes. It went from four until eight. Uh, Bill had said that some of his, uh, new neighbors who happened to be, uh, movie stars and celebrities were going to swing by, but because I didn't see them, they're not going to drop any names because maybe they didn't show up. Okay then. Well, uh, you know what? I got a whole crew, uh, that are charging by the hour and they're waiting but for we me. We have a guest. We do have a guest. And, and I wish, I wish the freeze, uh, slash balls, excuse me, the, uh, the Fiox slash Basel news had broken. Cause we'd talk about, cause we have the fantastic, um, Noah Horowitz, formerly of Art mm-hmm. Basel Americas, who's now over at Sotheby's, uh, running some gallery relations over there. And I think uh, it's a really interesting conversation. So I think people should stay tuned. Check it out. He is way brighter than I am and uh, has some good stuff to say. Noah's super smart. He runs circles around us. Stay tuned. Coming up right after this. Welcome back to No to Bene. Nate and I are joined with Noah Horowitz, now with Sotheby's. Uh, most recently, he was uh, director of the Americas for Art Basel. And uh, what's going on, Noah? Where are you calling in Noah. from? Uh, York Ave, gentlemen, in the office. Let's go. Yeah, nice. someone's working today, at least. Hey, <laughs> hey, I'm working. I'm just, you know, in Los Angeles, where it just never feels like work. May is just around the corner. Yeah. Um. How 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 you uh, how you adjusting to your new life? Like, uh, you got a bigger office to go to in terms of like the mm-hmm. amount of people that work on York. I assume than what the New York office of uh, Art Basel was like. Uh, how you how are you enjoying the sociability? You have a very nice wine shop on the ground floor. You've been hitting them up at all. Occasional deals. Got some tough to get a good deal. Though you can get really good bid ends. Uh, mm-hmm. and there is some pretty choice material. I'm, uh, I'm suited today as well, gentlemen, because it's master's week and there's it's master's week people in the building. There's Let's some pretty, nice man. and you, you don't mean the golf, the, the, the golf tournament, right? <laughs> We're not in no, Georgia. This would, this would be no pimento cheese sandwiches. Mm, those are good. 
So uh, walk us through what's happening in the HQ right now. Just, just, just paint a picture. I miss it. Who's there? In, uh, in the building. Yeah, what's going on? Well, we've got um, some amazing material here. Obviously, the, the, the Botticelli is, is the one that everybody's looking at, but it's mm -hmm. quite a bit beyond that. Um, the Magritte that we're going to be bringing forward as well, that was just announced, I think about a week ago, um, pretty extraordinary is, is on the ground floor. I mean, uh, it's just to me, you know, one of the, the great shifts is just being in a building surrounded by art all the time mm -hmm. uh, and getting one's eyes on things that you wouldn't normally see, or at least certainly through a Chelsea kind of Basel lens come in contact with. So that's been pretty fun, actually. I noticed you're wearing a suit, but no tie. Back when I worked for auction houses, I we were required to wear neckwear as well. But I guess times they are changing and changing for you, because this is still a relatively new position. When did you when do you officially come on board over on the York Avenue Death Star? Yeah, so I started um, actually on I, at the end of September. I think it was uh, I think it was the same day that Basel opened in Switzerland. Um, so I've been here. You know, we're we're pretty much at four months now, um, and um, and you know, I've been in the office. So this month's been a little bit slower because of um, some COVID relapses, but beyond that, I've been here pretty much every day, uh, since being back and, and finally getting my feet a bit more settled, obviously, um, totally new setup in terms of colleagues and, and business flow and, uh, conversations, but it's been cool. Um, I mean, we'll get to what you did previously, but it is quite a change and your official role, um, or it was kind of explained to me at least as you're kind of doing a lot of contemporary or primary market gallery relations. Am I getting that right? Kind of what was the remit that you were given when you came on board at Sotheby's? Yeah. I mean, it was a remit that we developed together. Um, so I think it's as much being giving a remit as, as, as constructing a remit. Um, it's not really biased to any particular niche or sector, although obviously you know, my expertise uh, and my experience working with galleries and dealers and in the market is more contemporary focus. Um, but, you know, there's an ability to expand pretty widely beyond that within, you know, within the broader purview of, of what gallery dealer business is. Um, you know, there's a few facets to it, right? Um, foundationally, and, and a lot of what I've been working on today is actually just getting things up and running with um, our financial services team. Uh, to very proactively start creating structures, um, which are already in place, by the way, but but not necessarily, um, you know, where we where we ultimately want them to be, to really to bring capital to galleries and dealers. Um, that as a business line within Sotheby's, uh, the Sotheby's financial services business rather has been around for decades now, um, but there's new energy behind it. Um, I'm sure um, you uh, followers of market trends will have caught um, prior to my arrival about a year and a half ago, uh, Alex Clavin um, came in as a minority investor with Sotheby's really, um, you know, the remit to, to really grow that business. Um, we have an incredibly talented new head of um, head of growth on that side of the business, a guy called Scott Malison, who, who joined us from JP Morgan. And so I'm working with their team to really bring opportunities and, and ultimately bring capital to galleries and dealers and, and to that part of the market uh, as one pillar 
Um, and then, you know, expanding beyond that, looking at ways we can um, do business with galleries, create opportunities for, for, for both buying and selling things and, 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 and ultimately in time develop new ways of working together that, that go beyond that. Now, I mean, I understand it in theory, but uh, kind of if we can give kind of a sort of a, just a, a thought exercise, like how would that work? Say I'm a mid-market gallery. I have maybe one or two art market stars uh, and yeah. a little, little bit of inventory by them, but most of what I get into my hands, I'm moving fairly quickly uh, to clients of mine that have been on a waiting list. Several art, other artists that maybe don't move as well, but bring to fairs and, and, and can sell a number of works every year. Um, but I find the need for a little bit of liquidity. Maybe I want to buy some things off the market on a hot secondary market from one of my main, from one of my, from one of the bigger artists in my stable to to try and control that market. Uh, I dial you up. Kind of what is the process like, and what kind of services can you provide to me? Great question. Getting right after it, right out of the gates, Ben. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we you know we loan against art as collateral ultimately, right? So. Um, as a business whose specialty is buying and selling art, um, you know, we have the ability to loan against, you know, for the most part, more, more types of things, uh, different price points than say, you know, Bulls Bracket Bank, who's only going to be transacting or only comfortable really lending against things with a really deep, you know, principally blue chip, highly limited um, backing. So, yeah, so a gallery, you know, may have needs, they just want, you know, more operating capital just to, to you know, whether that's overhead, uh, you know, bricks and mortar stuff, whether that's artist production, um, whether it's, it's, it's dry powder to, to start, you know, playing in the secondary markets more or um, doing that activity, we can, you know, put deals in place to service that, um, you know, and, and the business itself um, uh, sits off to the side. So there, you know, there, there's separation in place that we can run that with, you know, confidence with our clients that, um, that what that conversation is, doesn't necessarily connect to the commercial side of our businesses, which is kind of service we, we would, provide um to, to private clients anyway that that, that puts some conditions in place uh, but you are able to perhaps more uh, accurately value what holdings are worth that you're lending against because you have the the expertise of people you can go to to find out what something is worth is that yeah, does that can, come into play at all or yeah absolutely i mean we can you know more accurately value a broader range of things and create a structure ultimately because if we needed to we could sell it um, you know, put, put in place more flexible structures for galleries to, to, to access that kind of capital that, that may be harder, um, you know, through a more conventional, uh, through a more conventional, uh, outlet. Now, and the financial products that I'm familiar with in this space, uh, that tend to be marketed towards private collectors or, or collector dealers, um, generally your, you know, the minimum line of credit is usually around two and a half million dollars and you can have a basket of objects, but the, there's generally a fairly high minimum value for each individual work within that basket uh, of collateral, uh, oftentimes either a million or $500,000. Um, and the, at LTV, a loan to value ratio is usually only about 50%. Uh, are you guys able to be more flexible or is it still the same kind of uh, basic parameters for a gallery as it would be for a private client? Yeah, I mean, we can start lending. I mean, these are all things, by the way, that like, you know, I'm, I'm looking at in real time. Um, obviously, you know, we're trying to create something that's really competitive in the marketplace, but we can start originating loans starting at around a half a million dollars on up, um, you know, but, but, you know, just using your example, you'd still have to have 
around a million dollars of of art, right? Uh, to get the ball rolling. So, you know, at, at this stage in terms of where we are, it's it's not something that's going to check every last box in the book, but it's 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 a good conversation starter. And I think for people that, you know, certainly on the gallery side, um, when you look at, you know, the range of galleries out there now that, um, you know, that have several artists that are really performing and, and really doing it interesting things and many galleries are starting to um you know play more fluidly between the realms of primary and secondary and are looking to support their artists more as their own prices rise you know i think that there is an interesting place for somebody like us to start operating here and you know and to start olive branching new ways of bringing these worlds between galleries um you know and auction houses that that haven't always been traversed no, I think it's super important. I think for 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 mid-sized galleries uh, who have been unable to oftentimes stay engaged in their artist market as the value grows, uh, if someone like you and, and Sotheby's can provide them liquidity to be able to stay in control, they can perhaps hold on to some of these artists more and grow their entire business and and not just you know and, and grow where they are within the market space and grow from small to mid-size and and maybe even larger. I think it's a super valuable, interesting thing, yeah. and I think it's interesting to yeah. have you you at the helm of this or one of the people at the helm of this thinking about it because you're someone that's thought really deeply about the art market and the economics of of the fine art space for a long time even predating uh, your most recent position um you've been writing about and thinking about uh, as a thought leader on these things you want to tell us a little bit about your background kind of pre-basel and kind of what what you were up to then yeah and I, and I can do that by way of just sort of touching on what you just led with which you know is in many ways one of the reasons that I ultimately got here because, you know, certainly through my time, um, you know, working with Mark and the leadership team at Basel and, and really in the trenches and, and seeing the industry, how it works, you know, and, and really what the needs of galleries and dealers are. I mean, we saw a lot of this stuff firsthand in terms of many of the conversations we had on that side of the fence, you know, over many, many years in terms of the, the cash constraints and all the challenges, just managing, <laughs> managing business, managing payments and, and trying to compete in a more competitive landscape. A lot of that stuff is also, you know, noted in the art market report, which we published with, with Claire and, and UBS over the years. So, um, you know, um, all of that really resided at, at the core of, of, you know, why I made this leap and why I think it's a neat time to be joining Sotheby's, which, you know, is under new leadership or, or relatively new leadership mm -hmm. and is thinking really outside of the box. And, you know, to, to get, I think, to your question, which is really my journey in, in the art world or the art market more specifically, you know, it, it, it kind of brings me back a little bit to the beginning of how this all began. I mean, I was, um, as an undergrad student, I was an econ major. I was a summer analyst at Goldman Sachs, like the summer of 2001, uh, you know, Damn. turned out uh, after 9-11 that, you know, having having a, all these <laughs> ordinary opportunities that autumn, like didn't really transpire as planned. Um, I had already started developing an interest in, um you know, cultural industry broadly, like investments and into art, into wine. Um, I wrote a, a senior thesis on the post-war auction market, you know, working with like engineers at, at University of Virginia, basically like data mining these pricing databases that, you know, in the early 2000s were just coming into the fore. Um, oh, at the right. advice of my advisor at the time, I ended up applying to uh to 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 the courthold in london to do an ma and 
got a scholarship and, and that turned into a PhD and, and really like, you know, the book I ended up writing on, on the art market, kind of how, how a lot of this stuff works. Um, I always wanted to do something entrepreneurial in the art market with ever, without ever totally knowing what that could be. And um, some combination of being at the right place, the right time, just building interesting relationships with, with gallerists, artists, curators, um, that community really created the foundations. I mean, and, you know, when I, when I did my PhD, what was interesting at the time, this was, you know, sort of mid 2000s and the art market was cranking. And, um, you know, there were a lot of studies or a lot of things being written on like investing in art uh, and all of this. And, and what I found in talking to artists and gallerists, and I'm sure you guys as, as journalists and uh, market practitioners as well have, have had many of these conversations, like the questions that weren't getting asked to a lot of these players was, was how things are created and how they're brought into the market. Everybody was really just focused on like how much things were and who was buying those things. And I think from a journalistic standpoint, I mean, that's fine. And, and there is an interest in that, but from an academic level, I wasn't really that interested in those questions. There were more fundamental things that I was trying to uncover. And, you know, that began like longstanding friendships and inroads to getting the trust of artists, dealers, and, and really, having those kind of interesting conversations and, you know, I think the rest is, is kind of continued from there. How did you end up? I mean, I've always thought that uh, working at, uh, working at a, uh, an art fair would be like a fantastic and fascinating job. How'd you end up transferring from academia and journalism into like the beginning of an entrepreneurial or, or, or a market was, space? Was also, VIP? I didn't know I should be calling, also, I didn't know I should be calling you Dr. Horowitz. Oh yeah, yeah. We're gonna only call you Dr. Horace from now on. Forgot about that. Yeah, I uh, thank you guys. I I've stopped calling myself Dr. Horowitz, although I do appreciate it. I got in trouble on an airplane once when I had Dr. Horowitz, and there was actually a doctor required, and I realized it's generally. Uh, I also. I, I couldn't stand those kids that we did our PhDs with who like the day they got their diploma, like uh, changed their email address to like doctor or whatever. At, <laughs> um, at the yeah. That's like the ultimate, like, like douche move. Just like, <laughs> like, like as soon as like hours afterward, it's like you plant the doctor on there. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Sorry. What was the question again? Well, I mean, how did you get into the art fair business from oh, you know, yeah. academia? I, was VIP the first thing? Yeah, yeah, it was actually. I um, explain. So, I, so VIP was the, the world's first online uh, art fair, right? Uh, yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I guess goes well, go slightly back in time. While I was doing my PhD, I started working at the Serpentine, and I spent years mm -hmm. working on Zurich and doing things there. When he was just getting to London, and my yeah. um, then girlfriend, now wife, uh, Louise, was was actually at Christie's on on King Street in London um, involved with a Nordic sale. And when the crisis happened, 08, 09, like, you know, her sale got called and we, you know, we'd both been in London for a long time and, and decided to sort of pull a ripper and pivot and move to New York. Neither of us had a job and, and I ended up meeting Jim Cohan um, in the, the early new year. And he had this idea of doing this online art fair um, and he and his his wife, Jane, and, and their business partners were just beginning to put it together and we hit it off. And so I, I ended up traveling the world really with Jim, who, you know, really showed me this world through his lens. Uh, and we spent uh, about a year together 
uh, speaking with gallerists, dealers, really all his peers, uh, and learning what they needed uh, in, in that sense in, in this digital in this digital space. And I think for Jim, um, you know, this this wasn't uh, a replacement for bricks and mortar business, but it was born of this conceit that a lot more art than people wanted to talk about at the time, and this was, I guess, 2010, uh, were selling works at a pretty high clip and pretty high value sight unseen on JPEG, et cetera, et cetera. And I think he was aware of this, his, his colleagues were aware of it, um, and, and we moved the needle on it. And so VIP Art Fair, when it launched in January 11, really was the first, you know, you had ArtNet and you had other aggregating mechanisms, but you never really had an event of scale like a, a real fair bringing together, you know, the, the cream of the crop galleries um, from blue chip Gagosians and Paces down to young emerging gallerists all over the world. And you never really had that consolidation of, uh, of, 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 of powers that be all in the same place uh, as we did. And, and so I really credit Jim in many ways to um, taking me under his wing and, and showing me this world and, and, and trying to innovate and build something as well. Because um, you can really focus through that journey on the key things that you need to deliver and, and, and figure out how to do that for your clients. And that just took place as a single occasion, right? Did it ever repeat or is it just the one VIP online fair? It did repeat actually. Yeah. I mean, there were other, there were others that followed. So that was January. And, you know, I mean, to cut to the chase, it was this like unmitigated disaster, right? I, you know, we, we launched like the whole world was watching. I, I think there was like, I think we were in the cover of the wall street journal, like the, the week before, um, you know, it was extraordinary interest around it. And then, and then like, you know, the buzzer sounded and just nothing happened. And it was, it was this really difficult experience. And of course, you know, you, you, you sell the dream to these, these folks and, and then you're trying to deliver like baseline technology and the technology, which should theoretically be the easy part, doesn't get off the ground um, and everybody's watching. And, and so that was really tough. Um, But there were a few other smaller niche things. I think a year later, after I had already left, they did do a second thing, but there wasn't really, you know, the internet's a very unforgiving place. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, I think everybody in various facets of business has learned that. And this was, you know, an acute and, and pretty painful um, lesson. I, I will say that, you know, and this has continued to inform my thinking, like I'll never forget going to the Armory show um, about six weeks later with Jim and, you know, we had been through the trenches of getting yelled at, having lawsuits threatened, trying to figure out ways to, to recompensate everybody. We did, and, and I think we found a way to walk that line. And But I remember walking through the show, the, the Armory, um, with Jim, and, and more than one dealer at the time pulled us aside and said, you know what, we actually met somebody here that approached us and learned about us on this online art fair that you guys ran, and we just mm-hmm. sold something to them. And you know, you, you should know that like credit is actually due to your platform for bringing oh. that. And that was the light bulb moment, uh, actually. And I think, you know, it is, it is really important and it's, it's always really stuck with me. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it was, you know, clearly prescient because, you know, fast forward five, six years, whenever it was, the world shuts down. Uh, in-person art fairs can't take place in a way that we're used to having them take place. And we see the reemergence of online art fairs, this time mm-hmm. with robust technology that works a little bit better. Um, so it was, you know, it wasn't, wasn't the wrong idea. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, just the implementation. It was the right idea. It was the right idea. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, and- but in terms of like what VOVRs of the last 18 months have offered, is not a lot more technologically what you have is you have social media now, obviously that didn't exist at the time. And you have people's aptitude for e-commerce generally um, and for transacting a lot more. And so those, you know, those factors, which we couldn't have controlled have, you know, massively contributed to those changes. And did you go basically right from the, uh, right from the, uh, the untitled, excuse me, the VIP art fair to art Basel? The uh, uh, well, there was, the there was show. an armory show stop over. Oh, wow. <laughs> you see, they, I, I always forget the armory show <laughs> in every way, shape and form. Um, mm. I um, I was approached by by Paul Morris and company it must have been that mm. summer of 2011, uh, summer, early autumn 2011. Um, uh, Freeze had announced that they were coming to New York the following May. And the armory is more or less written off for dead. Um, and I was approached with this, this job to join and um, to try to, I think, lead the contemporary part of the, the fair or something. And I, I started, it must have been like October, November, usually like all the galleries apply in June and you do the selection meetings in July. And this was now like October, November. And, you know, they were like, look, if you can get 20 or 30 like blue chip galleries on before Christmas, like <laughs> you've got a job. And, and if you can't like, you know, that's that that's that. And mm. and and I immediately got on a plane and I went to like Berlin and started having meetings with these galleries. And lo and behold, like we we pulled it off without giving away the house. And, you know, we never never offer anything for free. And and the fair happened and, and, you know, the armory say what you will was always like a successful commercial fair. Um, yeah. Morris always used galleries to like really that. galleries do great there. I mean, it's the thing and everyone shows up. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I always Except remember for me. Paul. Yeah. Ben, Ben doesn't like the armory. We can't help him. Paul always <laughs> used to, like to say the timing was great because it was after bonus season, but before tax season, uh, <laughs> at least in the old March dates. Um, but um, yeah, that was that. Like we we got the fair back on its feet. I, some sometime not long thereafter, Paul stepped down, and and I was promoted into the directorship, and I was there for about three and a half years, I guess. Um, and then along the way, met you know, got to know Mark, who I had known a little bit, and, and built a relationship with he and and Annette, who was at at Basel also at the time, and and you know, knew Sam obviously, um, and you know, and they they you know, had this idea after acquiring the fair in Hong Kong where Magnus Renfrew at the time, um, you know, basically ran that office and, and was a director for Basel in Asia. Um, you know, they realized after, you know, 12, 13 some years with the fair in Miami that we didn't really have that presence in the U.S. despite the fact that the U.S. is the largest market. Um, and, um, and so Mark hired me to, to open an office in New York and, and join the executive committee and really lead Basel's business efforts in, in the Americas. I mean, those are, must have been a really fascinating time, I mean, to, to kind of join in as 
the kind of fair business is changing. You know, we have mm-hmm. Freeze develop, you know, uh, opening more fairs at that time. The LA comes around that time uh, on the heels of New York. Um, I mean, we also see, uh, at that time have galleries start to feel as though they're doing too many fairs. You have the regional fairs, their hometown right. fairs, uh, the major fairs, as I consider um, on the contemporary side, Basel and, and to a lesser degree, but still Freeze. Um, kind of what kind of what, what sort of lessons were early lessons that you learned that, that surprised you about about how this all was going to work? Um, well, it's you know it's fast changing competitive environment. I, I started with Basel in the summer of 2015. You know, you know when we look back, it, I mean, who knows what the future brings? And I do think like unequivocally, there's an important place for fairs and, and Basel in particular and, and the great fairs, not just Basel, but the other good fairs that really serve a purpose um, in the future. But, you know, it may well be that we look back and, you know, we've all sort of come of age in this very peculiar moment of globalization, fairs, contemporary art, all this stuff like 2015 to 2020, 21. It was just everything was on fire and um, and all the rest of that. I mean, it, it was an amazing run. Um, we also started seeing a lot of changes within the business, a lot of which, you know, are in that art market report as well. I mean, I think one of the most astonishing sort of takeaways from that report that's always stuck with me that that Claire on earth was was just the slowing rate and of, of of new gallery creation you know there was this moment um you know in the I want to say the late 90s early 2000s where you know the rate of new galleries opening and galleries closing was just huge and and by 18, 19, that had really changed. Like the rate of new galleries coming into business was just far less. I mean, it was like 8x less than it had been 15 years before. And I think for all fairs, you know, that's that's a concern. It's, it's the pipeline of your future clients. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think a younger generation has more creative outlets. There's other other things to do. I mean, clearly like all the digital NFT crypto stuff, which is like a totally separate conversation, um, you know, only adds fuel to that fire. Um, but, you know, people all talk about business, you know, the business changing and lack of connoisseurship and all of this kind of stuff. And I think we really, you, you've seen that, um, you know, it's, it's not really by the way that galleries were closing at any higher clip over that period. Even through COVID, there's been a surprisingly, a surprising lack rather, or surprising quote unquote, maybe to some people it's not that surprising, not that many galleries have closed. You've got, you know, Gavin, obviously, Metro and a few others, but, but the rate of yeah. people coming into the market and then rising through the ranks the way they used to when, when I came of age in this business has changed. Um, and, and some of the... I mean, I think a little bit of it uh, could be just the bandwidth for collectors to take in new information. Um, they get comfortable with a certain a certain class of galleries and a certain group of galleries. And then, you know, as new younger things come on, it's harder for them to, to, to hold space for new information. And especially with all the information coming to them at their phone and tons of images, it's really much easier to focus on the things you know in this day and age. Um, and it makes it much harder for, I think, small little little shops in New York, you know, way downtown or or even in Brooklyn to kind of get on the radar of people that are willing to pay more than five, $6,000 for an well, individual object. 
but there's also a new class of collectors that come with the new crop of galleries. I think that that's the way you have to think about it, you know, and, and, you know, that new crop of collectors doesn't naturally buy it at Sotheby's all the time, but now, you know, partnering with, 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 you know, galleries on the primary side, Noah, I think you're going to be able to sort of help get, you know, the kind of collectors that you were trying to get to Basel for the first time to Sotheby's for the first time. You know, it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's an expansive marketplace. Um, I've never really looked at those hierarchies as as concretized as many people might have. Um, you know, I always tried to look at what opportunities there were, whether in the digital space or, or you know, working with to some degree, you know, with other whether it's collector groups or even, you know, uh, with the auction house in terms of just VIP access and all of that, um, you know, at the fairs. And I, I think in a fast changing world, a lot of these boundaries are sort of falling by the wayside little by little. Um, I think having said that, like, let's be clear, like there need to be certain boundaries around, you know, very fundamental things, artist representation, sure. what the goals and responsibilities are, the, the custodianship of what it means to like really bring an artist up through all stages of his or her career. Like that stuff to me is pretty fundamental, mm -hmm. um, you know, under nothing that I intend to do here are we going to start getting in the middle of any of that but on the other hand i think that there's a place for a more constructive proactive relationship um you know in 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 ways that that suit the occasion to to start bridging these boundaries i mean uh, more on the specialist side as someone who has experience doing such uh the galleries that that made it an effort to have good relationships with someone at each of the auction houses and i'm talking small and mid-sized galleries here not not galleries that are generally that active on the secondary market they were able to ask us to do things and we were able to help them with things in a way that what wasn't capable with the, with the galleries that just shut you down. If you could have a collaborative relationship with someone, just figure out what something was, whether it should be sold, you know, how it could be sold in a responsible manner. If so, um, I think it really behooves them. And I think having someone like yourself, you know, even though you're, you're not on the specialist side of things, but that I think galleries really, really trust, I think can only be helpful. And just, and just one thing on something you said, Nate, I think, you know, one thing Sotheby's has done so well over the past, you know, year or so, year or more is through their different selling categories that aren't traditionally contemporary fine art, uh, sneakers, watches, uh, other sorts of collectibles like this have been able to pipeline in all sorts of new blood on the collector side. Um, and the notion, I think, or at least the, the, the business argument is that eventually you can convert these new customers at the lower end as they grow into higher end uh, clients through the more high end sales categories, uh, Sotheby's, the furniture pictures and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's an expansive business. I mean, the amount of stuff that we're doing, you know, non-fine art related is is mind boggling. I, I like, you know, truth be told, like I've enjoyed that. It's been yeah, kind totally. of liberating to be here and, you know, at Basel and Armory before that things are so regimented and they're so particular. And, and now, you know, um, you just have access to a lot of other things. And I think, you know, the future is going to be, Everybody likes in, in a very cliched way talking about cross collecting, but it's it's real. Um, I see through my own personal network of, of friends and non art world people that are beginning their uh, I don't want to call it collecting yet, but let's call it art buying journeys. You know how many of them are now coming. They were all in Miami. Many live in Miami. They're like coming to our world through the universe of NFTs, through fractional ownership. Um, through sneakers or wine or cars and other totally. 
examples. And, and Sotheby's again is like in a really interesting place. So like Ben, to your point, I mean, you know, if I can harness some of that, right. And start bringing incrementally that flow of traffic and interest to the people on the other side of the fence that are my friends and colleagues in the gallery and dealer world. And, you know, the Zwilmers and the Pieces and the Gagosians need that a lot less than, you know, like Jasmine Sue is a good friend who was on the pod, uh, you know, a week ago, like Jasmine's a nice candidate for that. You know, you start having those conversations and all of a sudden you realize that there's a possibility for win-wins along this spectrum. And, and I think in, 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 in a lot of this, you know, and I, I could be proven wrong, but like just being a trusted point of contact to like sit down and have such a conversation at all aspects of the market is incredibly important. Um, and also to say no, or to like say, we, we, we can't service this. Have you talked to this person? And I always did that at Basel, um, where I needed to. Um, and, and I think a lot of that transfers here and now it's really just about getting my feet settled and, and figuring out where to start playing, you know, as, as we start growing more. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that feels all very true and you seem like a uniquely perfect person to, to act in that role. Um, I have like Absolutely. a bunch of guys waiting for me downstairs that are hanging a very, <laughs> very expensive painting, but I did want to get into something and, and not to delve too far into the past and, and into your background, but, um, a really great Basel, Basel restaurant that Nate or I might not have heard to, not one of the big three or four, like yeah. where you go, where are you going and take like a one special friend out, uh, for a snack. Is that a question for me for Switzerland in June? Ben? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, where am I going to go that I haven't been before? That's like you know, classic, but isn't on the you know the the, the same like five restaurants that every gallery has their generous at or that I know of. Because I feel like you've spent a lot more time in Basel in the, in the shoulder season, shall we say, than I have. Not Donati, I guess. Yeah, no, not the, yeah. not the you know. <laughs> there's the uh, I mean, the one that I always uh, there's the re- the Richonsley. I can never pronounce that mm-hmm. one. On a by Novartis, it's like really good steak frites. Then, okay, um, yes, yeah, so oh, that's wow. what I need to hear. I, I, I don't think I hear. Then, um, that sounds great. The one that we always like is is Chantaburi, the the Thai place. Um, uh, in oh, Kassar. people have told me about this for years. I yeah, people have told me about it for Thai years place. too. There's an incongruity that I can't wrap my head around of eating Thai sure. food and in, in uh, well, while hearing Swiss Deutsch in the background. Some years need some some non you know Swiss food in Basel anywhere you can get. Yeah. It. Yeah, I go I go to Chantaburi quite a bit when I'm there, and it's mm-hmm. it, it'll definitely cut through your roasty and your 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 sausage. <laughs> okay, well, we all need a little bit of fiber in the diet, and uh, uh, this is. <laughs> I, I will say, like while we're on the food topic, and I'm pretty psyched about this, um, that in my part of Brooklyn, uh, which is like amazingly yeah. um, sort of resurgent. Um, uh, Jay, and I forget his last name, um, Jay Kumar, who had that great place in Basel for all those years, lives mm-hmm. in Brooklyn now, and he's opening a place in Park Slope, like, imminently. Wow. Oh, wow. funny Basel connection called Lore. <laughs> that plug in for him, because uh, this is very exciting. What's it called again, Lore? It's called Lore. No. It's like opening... Uh-huh. Any day now. Okay, we're well, okay. gonna have to meet there. I think for a meal, maybe we'll yeah. for other common friends and uh, and have yeah, a night like, on the town. Do dinners with this guy in Basel, and here he it's is. So in sick, it's incredible, so sick. absolutely Exciting. incredible. <laughs> you know what? Thank you so much for coming on the pod. This is amazing. Really. Yeah, thanks. It's super bright and really informative. I look forward to seeing you in real life soon. And absolutely. that's it from us. Note to Benet. Benet out. Out. Thanks, guys.